0: Welcome to the Captain's Table.
1: Welcome to the Captain's Table, where we have intimate chats with those who have shaped Star Trek in words. My name's Michael and for this show I'm really excited to present to you an interview with the author of These Are The Voyages, TOS Season 1, Mark Cushman. And alongside Mark is the original series story consultant John D.F. Black and his wife Mary. Mark Cushman's television writing credentials include scripts for Star Trek The Next Generation, Beyond Belief, Fact or Fiction, Diagnostic Murder and Bachelor Pad. In addition to the book we'll be talking about this evening, he is the author of I Spy, a history of the groundbreaking television series. John D.F. Black and his wife Mary both worked on the original series. John is best known for his work not only on Star Trek in 1966, but also its sequel series Star Trek The Next Generation during the 1980s. The interview was recorded in January 2014 and I really want to thank everyone involved in making this interview happen including Mark, John, Mary and Barbara Azro from Jacobs Brown Media Group. At this point I want to mention and apologise for a couple of sound issues when John and Mary are talking to us but I really think this shouldn't take anything away from the amazing stories you're about to hear. So here's the interview, enjoy! (coughs) With me this evening we have three special guests. We have the author of These Are The Voyages, TOS Season 1, Mark Cushman. Hi, Mark. Hi, Michael. It's great to be here. Thank you for coming along. And as well as that, I'm really pleased to introduce John D.F. Black and his wife, Mary. John was executive, or one of the producers, I should say, on the original series, and Mary was there as well. Welcome both to the show. Thank Thank you. you. It's such an honour to speak to you both. Thank you so much for coming on this evening. So, Mark, for yourself, how did you discover Star Trek?
0: Well, I discovered it as a young young boy. I started watching it when it was first airing in the 1960s in America here on NBC. I think I caught my first episode in 1967. It was during the rerun period of the first season on the network. And the first episode I, re- I remember seeing was Devil in the Dark, which was that terrific episode about the Horda making little caves in that planet and trying to protect uh, her unborn children from Kirk and his people. And I had never seen anything like that before. I'd seen other science fiction shows. There weren't very many in this country. You had Doctor Who over in England. We had Lost in Space, and that was about it. But we had science fiction movies. Most of them were B-films. And uh, I'd never seen anything that talked about the subjects that Star Trek episodes talked about, including the episode that John wrote, The Naked Time, which was just startling to me to see a show that was brand new on the air, taking its lead characters and, in a sense, stripping them naked and, and showing their insecurities and the things that tormented them and tortured them and letting everybody witness this. And by watching this, I found that myself and people my age were learning things about humans and about us. Us confused teenagers can learn about life by watching these characters much better than watching other TV shows.
1: And also, at the beginning of the story, you also mentioned about no homework Thursdays.
0: Yeah, I was, yeah, I was living <laughs> up in Oregon near Tillamook, which is a dairy community. They're famous for their cheese. We didn't get the NBC channel during the, uh, the winter months. The signal wasn't strong enough for it to come in and be picked up off of our antenna, which was up on a mountain, because there were just mountains all around our farm. Uh, so we received the other two networks, and that was about it and yet everybody else at school at the nearby town which was around 10 miles from our farm was watching this show because they lived in the town they kept talking about this thing called Star Trek and i had no idea what they were talking about And I remember it was on a Thursday. It was aired on Thursday nights out here, which I didn't know because I wasn't watching it. But it was on a Thursday. And our teacher, Mrs. Ruff, started to assign homework. And this big groan came up from all the other students. And she stopped and she said, I know. It's Star Trek night. Okay, no homework. And everybody cheered. And I cheered. But I didn't know what I was cheering for. And I asked somebody out in the hallway, I said, what's a Star Trek? And he looked at me like I was from another planet. He said, you don't know? You haven't been watching it? And I wasn't able to start watching it until that summer when they did uh, the summer repeats that the networks would always do out here. And so what I did is I would ask my my classmates to tell me about the most recent episode, tell me about last night's episode. And this was amazing to me because I was in the third or fourth grade and these kids were not talking about action, even though there was a lot of action in those episodes, but they were talking about theme. They didn't know it, but that's what they were saying. They, I say, tell me about last week's last night's show. And they say, well, it had to do with not all monsters are monsters because everything has a reason for what it does and, and things of that nature. And And it was so amazing to have these type of conversations with my fellow 10-year-olds. Why did you decide to
1: write the book? Because originally this was going to be a documentary on TV. So why the change?
0: Well, I met Gene Roddenberry in 1982. I was working for a TV station here in Los Angeles. Star Trek, by the way, inspired me to want to become a writer. So it's John's fault. John DF. Black sitting right next to me. It's his fault. <laughs> <laughs> I could have had a much better life if I became a lawyer or something, I think, or at least made more money. So I came to Los Angeles to be a writer, fired by that show and a couple others. I was working for this uh, TV station and they wanted to do a, a special on Star Trek and th- because it was gaining in popularity every year. Re-running these these episodes over and over, and then they started making the movies. So they said, well, we want you to work on this special. Write the, uh, the script for this special, because you know about Star Trek. We know you like it. And we're going to send you down to Paramount to interview Gene Roddenberry. And after they picked me up off the floor, I went down there and... Interviewed him and he gave me all the scripts from the episodes. I talked to other people and uh, the special got canceled. It didn't. It didn't get aired because Paramount wasn't cooperating with giving them clips and so forth. So it didn't happen. And Gene turned to me and he said, "Why don't you turn it into a book?" Well, by that point he had shown me over seventy boxes filled with all the documents from the making of the first series, all the memos and all the scripts and the story outlines and the rewrites and the censor reports from the network. Just all this material. And I, I thought, my God, I'd read a book when I was young called The Making of Star Trek, which had some of that stuff in it, but not very much, not compared to what I have in this book and the two following. And so I, I took them up on the offer. It just took me 30 years to get around to doing it because I was busy writing scripts. And so finally in my life, I had the time to uh, do all the research and write these three books, one devoted to each season. The book you mentioned, The Making
1: of, was that the one by Stephen Wheatfield, was it?
0: Yeah, his real name is Stephen Pohl, P-O-E, P-O-E and, and he wrote under the name of Stephen Whitfield for a while. And he worked for the company AMT that made the uh, model of the Starship ship Enterprise, which was the top-selling model in the history of TV. They so- sold a million units in one year, which was just staggering back then. And he came in to negotiate that deal with Roddenberry and his people, and he visited the set and saw what they were doing, and he was so taken by this show and the and the difficulties they had to go through to get these episodes made and get them on the air and invent everything they were doing from the the photographic effects to creating this whole universe before anybody else had done anything like this that he asked Roddenberry if he could uh, write a book and that was the making of Star Trek now that was written in 1968 while the show was still in production so it doesn't even covered the entire series, just the first year and a half. And they never revised it. They never updated it. But I read that book when I was young and so inspired by it Uh, because I was interested in getting into TV, and that told me about the mechanics of working in TV, how it's done. And so I I always wanted to take that one step further, and that's what I did with these books, by doing about 20 pages on each and every episode.
1: Now, before you wrote this book, you actually wrote a book called I Spy, A History of the Groundbreaking Television Series. Uh, How did your experience writing that book help you prepare for These Are the Voyages?
0: Yeah, I I tried to start the These Are the Voyages book back in the 80s, late 80s, after I interviewed Gene a couple times and a few other people and had access to all these documents. And I I just didn't have a clue how to do it, how to fit all this stuff into a book. And years later, after working in TV for quite a while, I met Robert Culp, who starred in I Spy, and told him I loved the show. And I was curious how they pulled that show off because it was the first and only series, to my knowledge, that filmed around the world. You had a show called Danger Man, which visited locales and but most of that was filmed at uh, in london at the studios i spy actually filmed around the, the world in all various countries and it was the first show to feature a white and a black actor on equal basis here in uh, in the united states or possibly anywhere I, w- I was amazed that they had pulled all those things off And I said, I've I've always wanted to read a book on your show. And he says, yeah, uh, Bill Cosby and I can't understand why somebody hasn't written one, because we know we were in the forefront of doing all these things. So I said, well, I'll write one. And and he gave me his blessing. And I met with him maybe eight different times, interviewing him and Cosby and all the other people. And so I used that experience of writing that book as, as a way of practicing, creating the template of what I wanted to do with Star Trek, which is basically writing a biography on a TV show in chronological order, the same way you would if you were writing a biography on Patrick McGowan or, or you know, Cary Grant or anybody. You just uh, start with their childhood and go all the way through their career so you know why they do things they do because of things that had happened earlier in their lives. Well, a TV show is like a person. It's a living entity. It has a birth. It has a death. Except in Star Trek's case, the death became a rebirth. And a rebirth again. And so I treated Star Trek like it was flesh and blood. I treated I spy like it was flesh and blood and wrote a biography of of that series. At the beginning of the book, you actually
1: mentioned that Gene Roddenberry suggested to you that you shouldn't limit yourself to just the writing of Star Trek. How did this affect your thinking of the book and the scale of the task at hand when writing the book?
0: Wow, you have been reading that. Uh, <laughs> very good. I, I forgot that was in there. My first idea was, because I was interested in writing TV scripts, was to examine the uh, the writing process that went on in Star Trek, because I loved the writing of that show and the themes and the, the concepts that they, they brought forward. And Gene said, well, you know, and Gene was a writer, so he understood the importance of the script. That's the foundation of the building that you're you're putting up. But he said, it's so many different aspects of trying to make a show, and this show in particular, because of the difficulty on those budgets of doing half a science fiction movie each week. And so he said, you, you're, you're missing a lot of the really interesting stuff if you just limit yourself to the scripts. So in the book, as you notice with each episode, I start with the script, and I have the memos from Gene and from John here, and Dorothy Fontana, and Gene Kuhn, and Bob Justman, and the network going back and forth analyzing what they like about the episode, what they don't like, what they would like to fix, what they can't afford to fix, things of that nature. And then I take you through the whole production, what was shot where and when and, and what went wrong that day and what went right that day, because I have all the documents. Then I give you the Nielsen ratings, how many people were watching, uh, letters that came in from fans after the episode aired, reviews that were written in the trade magazines. So I take each episode and give you the entire life span of that episode. And all these are combined together like the years in our lives that uh, that we all go through.
1: And I, and I have to say for the listeners, if you haven't read the book, it's incredible because actually my next question was going to talk about the structure. And I think it's a brilliant way you've looked at each episode. And it really does give so much information. So listeners, you really need to go and pick up this book because there's so much in-depth knowledge of those episodes. And that brings me to my next question. You mentioned earlier that you were given 70 boxes of information.
0: Yeah, it was 70 boxes for all three seasons. It was a five-year production period starting in 1964 and going all the way through 69. Uh, That first pilot, The Cage, NBC rejected it after all the executives stood up and gave it a standing ovation. felt it was too cerebral and it wasn't something the American audience was going to be able to get the concept of, easily enough. But they saw the quality, so they ordered a second pilot, and that was made in 1965, and then the show started production in April of 1966 and continued through January of 1969. So it it was a true five-year mission that everybody was on on the production end even though it just lasted three seasons here in America. And so, yeah, it was 70 boxes for all of those. Keep in mind, these boxes are, are like a filing cabinet in themselves, each one of them, filled with thousands of pages of hundreds of documents, each one of these 70 boxes. It's like 70 little treasure chests. With- yeah, I'll give you a sneak peek to book three. Bob Justman. Well, Bob and John Black and Dorothy and Jean, Gene, both Jeans, Jean Gene Kuhn and Gene Roddenberry and Stan Robertson at The Network, there's an expression out here in Hollywood that we use, they they lived in memos. They all had dictaphones, and so they would give their notes to each other through memos. And some of these memos would run 20 pages in length for each draft of each script or story outline. So it's a massive amount of communications back and forth between the creators of the series. And thank God that they did it, because now all this history has been preserved. We know what they were thinking and what they were dealing with in trying to pull off this this amazing feat, this amazing job, working till 2 a.m. in the morning and things like that. Or at least stay until 2 a.m. in the morning with your dictaphone. Right, John? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <a loser. laughs> and, and so we have all that documentation, which is very rare for TV shows. Most most of the time in TV you have a meeting or you do it in a phone call. But Gene liked to do it with the dictaphone, and so the rest of his staff did it. And there's a very curious memo in book three Where Bob Justman writes a memo to Gene Roddenberry, and Gene is responding, and Gene says, and I'm paraphrasing because I don't have the memo in front of me, but he says, Bob, for all of us writers, and I consider you a writer too, uh, for all of us writers, we can only hope that one day a biographer will be digging through all the papers from our life, all of our letters and memos and documents to try to figure out why we wrote what we wrote and why we did what we did, and that memo you just sent to me, that has to go in that book. And it does. It goes into book three of *These Are the Voyages*. Your books separate TOS fact
1: from folklore. How do these books dispel the myths around Star Trek?
0: I was shocked, Michael, about how much of the stuff on the internet and even in other books and magazine articles is folklore. It's not based on truth. It's based on rumors and and, and stories that get handed down from person to person, generation to generation. And by going through the actual show files, which is what Gene wanted me to do and what Bob Justman wanted me to do. But when you go on the Internet and you go to a lot of the websites or even read some of these other books, they're they're just guessing about things. And they get so much of it wrong. And one of the things that's wrong, well, there's on every single episode, uh, there's, there's wrong information out there. But one thing, one of the big things is this rumor that Star Trek was not successful when it first aired in America. I know it was a big hit on the BBC when it came over there in 1969, instantly. It was a big hit in Australia when it premiered in there in 67. Over here in America, they claim that it was an underachiever, that it failed in the ratings. Well, I licensed all the ratings reports from AC Nielsen and from TVQ and the other services. And Star Trek was not only NBC's top rated Thursday night show, and when they moved it to Friday night's, it was their top rated Friday night show. But on Thursdays, it quite often won its time slot. And on Fridays, there was no way it was going to win its time slot because it was up against the number one rated show on TV on CBS that year. But it uh, came in number two most weeks and again was usually NBC's highest rated show. So we were not told the truth as to why there were only three seasons of Star Trek. The truth is in the books, and you'll see them as you read further. And uh, you'll pretty much know what it's about by the end of book one, and you'll see it happen more and more in book two and three. It comes down to relationships. If a network doesn't get along with a producer, they don't want to keep a show on the air. And there's another old saying in Hollywood, a network cannot guarantee a hit, but they sure can guarantee a failure.
1: And I did notice a few times that the execs were saying, well, that's another strike towards Gene Roddenberry. For John and Mary, before Mark wrote the book, was it quite frustrating to see people on the internet or people in other books get these facts wrong about TOS since both of you had worked on the series and did you feel that it was about time someone did put the record straight about Star Trek
2: well when Mark undertook the book we didn't know he was undertaking it until he got until he got around to interviewing people who were involved what
0: John's trying to say is he wouldn't return my phone calls for a while
2: (laughs) (laughs) I I was sick of Star Trek by that time We were hearing Star Trek, Star Trek,
0: and when we
2: left, when Mary and I left, we didn't believe that we'd ever hear about Star Trek again. We thought it was over. It was over for us, and it would be over. It would just burn off, but it didn't, and it just kept having resurgence on resurgence on resurgence.
3: I think, too, uh, John and I got a bit nettled by finding ourselves the subject of fiction rather than fact. Uh, in the the passages where we were referred to. One of the stories that they were very fond of in the early books was the one when Majel came in and did a strip uh, proposing to um, play the casting couch routine with John and then everybody rushed in and said surprise and so forth. And every time it was written up, somehow people decided that they would put their own spin on the story. And nothing we could do, even when we gave an interview, as we are there people, the person would rewrite it to suit their own idea of a good scene. So uh, when Mark showed up and obviously had the intention of being specific, meticulous, honest, unbiased, it was a big breath of fresh air for us.
1: Oh, I can imagine Mark, why do you think many reference books don't have the production order correct of the series?
0: Again, is that because they're just going by what was aired first? Yeah, well, they're going by the uh, production numbering. And that was the order that the episodes were intended to be made. But when you're doing a series and you have to start a new production every seven days or so, not counting the weekends, so every every, every nine days. You know, sometimes a, a script that you were planning on making, say the 13th episode, isn't ready to go. So you pull the 14th one forward and you push the 13th one back and so forth. Well, when they put together the uh, the DVD box sets and, and so forth, they, they went by the production numbering. And everyone assumes that that's the order the episodes were produced. And for the most part, it is. But there are some exceptions. And as you read through the book, you'll find those exceptions, and you'll also find out why. For instance, in the DVD sets, they'll tell you the episode A Taste of Armageddon was produced before Lacey with Khan. Well, that's the way it was planned, but they were having problems getting those sets built for A Taste of Armageddon. And Khan didn't need any, or Spacey didn't need any sets because it was a bottle show. The entire show took place on the Enterprise and, and uh, the Sleeper Ship. So they could film the whole thing on stage nine while they were building the uh, the sets for the other episode on stage 10. So they pulled that forward. Ricardo Montalban was available to come in a week earlier. So they, they flipped them. And so now you find out the true production order of these shows. Because if you're anything like me, when I watch a series, I like to watch it in the order that it was made. Because what happens one week on a show can affect what is going to happen the next week between the cast, the writers, everybody. And I like to watch it really evolve in front of my eyes. And the only way to see it evolve truly is to see it in the order that they made it. Now, here's a question. It's
1: slightly off topic, but I noticed that the first season had 29 episodes and nowadays on television and average seasons about 20 22 episodes and I know there were other series during the 60s such as Bonanza and that had like 32 episodes a season perhaps John can answer this what were the reasons why the seasons were so long is that just the demand that the networks had at that time
0: well John's pointing to me so I'm gonna try to answer this but then I'd like to hear what John has to say too, and, and Mary as well because they were there it, it originally was 39 episodes a season here in the United States during the 1950s and early 1960s. And then it started getting cut back, down to 34 and then down to 29, and then by the time Star Trek was in its second season, 26, and then down to 24. And these days, you're lucky if you get 22 episodes made, some quite often it's less. The whole reason for that is economics, just the cost in making these episodes. Back then, the networks didn't believe that people would want to watch things more than once. So they would make a 29 episode season, or as you said, 30, 39 or 34 episodes. And they would only pick out maybe what they thought were the best 20% or 30% of those episodes. And they would show them during the summer as repeats. When in this country, most most Americans would go on their, their summer holiday and take vacations, traveling vacations, driving vacations, where you're not watching TV, you're on the road. But now they realize that If somebody likes a show, and I think Star Trek taught them this, I Love Lucy, Star Trek, Gilligan's Island, shows like that, we'll we'll watch those episodes over and over and over and always find something new to see in those episodes. Especially, and this is a plug, a shameless plug, if you read my book, you'll find new things to see in those episodes. So they make less now knowing that you're going to want to watch them again. And the good thing about that is they get to put more time and care into each episode, and they have a bigger budget for each episode. When poor John and Mary and all the others were working on Star Trek, my God, to have to do a, uh, an episode every seven days was was remarkable, and to have to do it for under two hundred thousand dollars, which would equate to about one point five million today. But most hour-long TV shows are budgeted between two and three million today. So they were doing this for very little money on very restrictive schedules. And John, Mary, you were there. How did it feel? Not very
2: well. We were up to our
0: necks in Star Trek. Uh, it was
2: Star Trek this, Star Trek that. I would get in about 10 o'clock in the morning. Mary would be there at 9. And we would sit down and look at the pages that had come in, decide what we could undertake today and what we had to put off till tomorrow. And then tomorrow became tonight. We had the scheduling to continue to work. Uh, that's why we were there till 1 and 2 o'clock in the morning. We had to continue. There was no alternative. All that material was there and coming in on a daily basis. But the 29 segments, we didn't even think about 29 segments. We were thinking about the one that we had in hand and what we were going to do with it.
3: And the one that we were turning to, at the same time, we were working on the one that was at hand. And you'd be having meetings with Jane Roddenberry that you'd squeeze in, and then you'd visit to the set, and then you'd come back. It was a very exciting time. Very
0: hectic. Yeah, and what's remarkable, uh, Michael, too, as you're looking at the book, you see I put down the dates for every draft of every story, every script. And when, when for in each chapter, as you're reading about that particular episode, do a little cross-referencing from those different scra- uh, script dates between the various chapters, and you'll see that these things overlap, that John would come in and be working on the one he had to work on that day because it goes into production tomorrow. But he's having, as he said, he was having meetings about an assignment they're giving out that's going to be filmed 10 episodes away, and he's doing a rewrite on one that's got to be shot next week, and he's having a story meeting with somebody who's working on a script that's going to be shot in three weeks. And so during the course of any one day, he could be working on five, six different properties. So you keep having to switch Okay, we're well, working on the enemy within this hour, ne- in next hour I'm working on Naked Time, back and forth, back and forth. And that's why people get exhausted working on TV series, and after a few years we we'll usually leave. That's why Gene Kuhn left after a year and a half. Just uh, very, very exhausting. That's kind of why you two left, one of the reasons. Uh, after the first half of the first season, you had some conflicts with Gene Roddenberry uh, mm-hmm. over the material and uh, the rewriting of the material. But also, you can't. How long can you go to two a.m. in the morning before you just can't get up and go in anymore?
3: We just didn't know any better. We thought it was normal. <laughs> it wasn't. We found out later.
1: So, for, for John and Mary, going back slightly, how did you both become part of Star Trek?
3: You had sold. I, you had sold a story.
1: I sold a story to my agent. Had sold a story to
2: Star Trek, and I won the Writers Guild Award that year. And Gene Roddenberry invited Mary and I to his home after the party was over. And Harlan. After, and and Harlan. Harlan Ellison. Can't forget Harlan. Dear God, no. So we went. And nothing was said about Star Trek or anything at that point. But two or three days later, I got a call from my agent who said that Gene Roddenberry wanted me to go to work on Star Trek. Well, when I went in and met with Gene, he told me that the reason, one of the reasons why he wanted me as opposed to him to be the story editor, was that people didn't like him much from what he'd done on the lieutenant. Because on the lieutenant, he had rewritten everybody as the Scripts came in. He'd change them, and he thought that they would do, they would work for me. And we had some of the greatest writers in television on that show, science fiction, notwithstanding.
0: They they brought in Richard Mathis, a renowned science fiction author who would worked on the Twilight Zone, and George Clayton Johnson from the Twilight Zone, Marlon Ellison, uh, who was a science fiction author and had worked on the Outer Limits, and Adrian Spies. Uh, Adrian Spies, yeah, and. Uh, uh, who are we forgetting? Robert Block. I mean, just just the really the super superstars. Theodore Ray Sturgeon. Bradbury. Theodore Sturgeon. Ray Bradbury was supposed to do a Star Trek episode. So you have this amazing pool of talent coming in, and uh, Gene knew that they were not going to these these type of writers were not going to sit back and allow their their stuff to be rewritten. And John, they liked John. So John was kind of like the uh, the buffer, uh, the guy who could keep everybody happy and and everything, but at the end of the day, Gene was rewriting the scripts anyway, because <laughs> Gene admitted to me, he said, he said scripts aren't written, they're rewritten, and he lived that, and so he was rewriting them anyway, and that was causing a lot of problems for John and his relationships with the other writers.
3: John Amen. came out feeling more like a Judas goat than a buffer uh, after a few experiences with Gene's rewrite. With Gene
1: rewriting the scripts, was that because he felt that no one could write Star Trek in the way he envisioned it, Or was it just uh, an insecurity around wanting to control the series?
2: What I could answer that question, but I really can't. I don't know what it was. He was compelled. He had this compulsion to rewrite everybody. He rewrote me. He rewrote him. He rewrote everybody who came. He would say how great a writer they are, and then he would go and rewrite them. There was no point to any of it.
1: How did you feel over the rewriting of The Naked Time?
2: Oh, well, he put in... Uh, let me give you a joke that he put in. Sulu comes charging up to uh, Uhur with his sword and his no-shirt on, and there he is, and he says, Ah, oh, fair maiden, and she said, Sorry, neither. Well, I don't know anybody who knew what that joke was.
3: Oh, well, a lot of people have. Some
2: people subsequently have found out what it, meant, But that was... That was the kind of rewrite he did. He'd throw in a little joke, his own, which I didn't find particularly funny, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, <laughs> Mark's laughing, and I'm laughing, and Mary is grinning. Mark said that I should tell you why the five year mission of the Starship, hmm. the opening statement. Well, at that time, the 29 segments, that was, you needed five years of those to go into syndication. But that meant to be distributed to other smaller stations and so on. So we called it the five-year mission, because that's what it was. (laughs) Five years of Star Trek.
0: Yeah, I always wondered when I was watching the show as a kid why it was a five-year mission. I thought, do they need to go back and refuel after five years? (laughs) And and naturally, you would think that, uh, that they'd have to go back and get their food storage units filled back up or whatever. Or just they would get burned out after five years and they have to shift out. But no, it was really uh, kind of an in-joke because they wanted to stay on the air for five years so they would have a good rerun package. Well, Star Trek broke the rules from start to end. And it turned out that three seasons, 79 episodes, were enough to have a rerun package that is still rerunning to this day. But nobody believed it back then. They thought they had to have five years, and that was what the, uh, the goal was. I can answer your question also, Michael, about, or at least give you my, my two cents worth on uh, why Gene rewrote. John was very right. Gene rewrote himself compulsively, and that's why he said to me, scripts aren't written, they're rewritten. I believe, as I know John does, because I write for TV, is that at some point you need to step away because you can rewrite it too much. And you can write the heart out of your own material. you got to know when to stop. And I don't know if Gene really knew when to stop. I think the reason he would stop rewriting a script is because it had to start filming the next day. And quite often he was rewriting them even as they were filming. But I, I will give him credit, and John as well, that they had to rewrite these scripts to a certain extent because the show hadn't premiered yet. Nobody knew how these characters talked other than Gene Roddenberry and John Black. And John would work with the writers to help develop their stories, and then John would do the first rewrite to make sure the characters sounded like they were supposed to sound. And then Gene would take it, and he would do additional rewriting. So that's why they have to do it. But uh, even after the show was on the air, the rewriting continued. These were hard characters to get right. If You think about it, nobody talks like Spock. Other than Spock. And there's no character on TV like Kirk other than Kirk. These are very unique characters. The way they talk is very unique. And so the freelancers didn't always get it right. They might have great ideas and great stories, but getting the dialogue right was harder for them. But that's where a story consultant like John comes in and he'll clean it up without changing what the story is about. He'll make it sound like those characters. And the contention, the problems, was that Gene would then do additional rewriting to where the writers would walk away saying, I don't want to do another one. Harlan Ellison left. He didn't want to do another Star Trek because he felt he was rewritten too badly. Yes, Mary.
3: In regard to uh, Harlan Ellison, there's a passage in Mark's book that is very human. You get used to company men going along with the boss. Uh, Bob Jessman was a fantastic production guy and extremely intelligent and wrote wonderful memos. But the one that is in the book that is the most moving, is the one he wrote to Gene about the final drafts of City on the Edge of Forever, Harlan's oh, script. Yeah. When Bob told Gene, not to his face, but through the memo, that he had taken, in effect, the soul out of the piece with his final rewrite that he chosen to have. And it's, as I said, it's a, a very moving moment of people in television actually do have Feelings about the
0: art, and, and it's funny it, you haven't gotten to that point that point in the book yet, Mike, because that's the 28th episode, but of season one. But uh, Bob Justman was very in favor of the rewriting for a while because uh, Bob's job was to try to yes. was to try to produce the show. You know, Gene Roddenberry and Gene Coon and John Black would deal with the writers and get the scripts ready, and then Bob Justman, poor Bob, had to take it and somehow film it <laughs> and make it affordable to film. And so Bob kept sending memos in saying, we can't afford to make this script. It's too expensive. You got to take these things out. But then Mary's right. He wrote this memo when they finally had done all the rewriting. And he wrote this heartbreaking memo there where he said, now we can shoot this. Now it feels like Star Trek and we can make this. But I can't say that what we have now is as good as what we started with. And he was really sad about it. And that memo's in the book. You'll see it.
1: And I believe some of these um, issues actually went on to The Next Generation as well, isn't it? With the rewrites and upsetting writers, unfortunately.
0: Well, John wrote for Next Generation, but he Mm. took his name off. I know it's, his name appeared on an episode called The Naked Now uh, against his wishes, but John did another script. Oh,
3: no, no, he, he chose a, an AKA for The Naked Now, I'm pretty sure. No, it
0: says John D.F. Black, but <laughs> but the other one you did, <laughs> yeah, there was another script that John wrote the, the screenplay for, a teleplay for, that he u- uses a pseudonym because Gene rewrote you quite a bit and you weren't happy with it. Gene was compulsive. that That's the only word I can
2: attach to him. I yeah. still don't know why. I don't know what was causal. He really didn't know what their hearts were. He didn't know what their souls were. And at least that's my conviction. I don't know whether that's true or not. And he would muck with material over and over and over again. And
1: would make no sense. it would make no sense sometimes what he came up with. So, Mary, I have a question for you. What was your role within the production and... You must have had an amazing insight to the series just as much as, as John did.
3: I, I was the fly on the wall, pretty much. I was John's assistant, and uh, I, mean, I was actually, my title was secretary, but I really was an assistant. I'd critique the material when it came in because I'm a speed reader, and that helps <laughs> that kind of situation. I would write my memos to John. One time, John had the ex- very embarrassing experience of taking in my notes because the pressure was so heavy he hadn't had a chance to write up his own notes on the uh, It was the Shimon the script.
0: Yeah. Dagger of the mind.
3: Yeah. Gene Roddenberry decided he didn't have time to stay because he had a meeting at NBC. He snatched up my notes that contained a large number of smart-ass comments meant only for John's eyes and handed them directly to Shimon Winselberg. Uh, fortunately, Shimon was a a good guy who could take things in good part because he could see that it wasn't meant to uh, sharpshoot the script was there, and I typed, and I critiqued, and I survived. <laughs> well,
0: and it, it's funny because uh, Shimon Winselberg ended up having a big falling out with Gene for the very reason we're talking about and wrote a letter, which is in the uh, the book there, on his episodes, Dagger the Mind and Galileo Seven. Where he basically quits and he, and he says, I'm going to have to go into analysis now because of the way you rewrote my script and the way you treated me. <laughs> so I don't want to make it sound like we're jumping down on Gene too much here. It's, it's the way Hollywood is. Hollywood is, is an ego-driven industry because it's very, it's, it's artists. It's very creative. People and so you, you have disagreements. And I kind of compare Star Trek uh, to The Beatles. I think Star Trek was Beatles of the TV. They were both from the same era, Mm -hmm. and they they both caught the same audience, and they both conveyed, they reinvented their their TV, and the Beatles reinvented music and got messages out that other people weren't getting out. But look at the talents. Look at the dynamics of those two. You cannot imagine the Beatles without John Lennon, nor can you imagine them without Paul McCartney, nor George Harrison, nor Ringo. You know, if you take any one of those guys... Out of the Beatles, it's not the same band. And if you took Shatner out of Star Trek, or you took Nimoy out of Star Trek, or took John Black out of there, because John's the guy who wrote Space, The Final Frontier. Where where would Star Trek be without that line right there? Or take Gene Coon out of there, or Dorothy Fontana. It wouldn't have been what it was. So there was something very magical about how the Beatles came together, and that those four people met and joined up with each other. And there was something very magical that how Star Trek came together... And that the people who were brought in were brought in at that time and brought in what they were able to contribute. So it's it's a thing that you can't really explain magic. You can only be in awe of it and appreciate it and enjoy it and wish you knew the answer to all the tricks. I try, I try to reveal a lot of the tricks in the book, but we can never really know what was going on in somebody's mind beyond the memos and what they were saying to the dictaphone. But yeah, there's a lot of amazing talent there, and it wouldn't have been the same. You know, you lo- again, you look at the Beatles, there was a lot of battling between Lennon and McCartney and so forth towards the end, but they were competing with each other, and that made them always try to outdo each other, and that gave us better material. Well, on Star Trek, again, you had Roddenberry and against John, and, and, and the two genes got into it later in the second season, but they were always trying to put together the best material they could, and a lot of times that conflict, that fire creates something magical and that's what we have today with star trek so moving on from
1: there what were your favorite episodes of tos for the three of you which episodes did you enjoy the most
0: i like mine (laughs) i do too i think the time is one of the best episodes not only of star trek but one of the most amazing episodes i've ever seen on tv just because of what it does how daring it is to do what it does with those characters Kirk admitting that he's that he's in love with the Enterprise, that that's his woman, and Spock admitting he never loved his could never tell his mother he loved her and and all that. That's really quite remarkable. Think of another show where you see characters do that unless they get drunk, which is John's idea. What I pitched was
2: that the characters are drunk without the staggers or the slurs, and so they're stripped.
0: They're naked. Yeah, because when you drink, you become uninhibited. And, and your real side sometimes peaks out. So John came up. You could only do that in a science fiction. You could only come up with a story like that in a science fiction where there's going to be some kind of a disease that's going to allow these characters to not be able to hide their uh, their secret side. They're going to reveal it to us. And and what a remarkable experience that was, especially back then. You know, we've we've seen so much science fiction over the decades that we take it for granted. But if you get in this time machine, which is this book, and you go back there, and you try to imagine, my God, you know, 20 million people tuning in that night here in the United States and Canada and seeing this thing, and they've never seen anything like it before, that episode or The Enemy Within that you're reading about right now, Mike, where you see the star of the show trying to rape his yeoman, who's a co-star on network TV. NBC was not happy about that.
3: My favorite episode is the movie Galaxy Quest. <laughs>
0: Love
1: Galaxy
0: Quest. Yeah, me too. <laughs> if, since we're talking about season one at the moment, maybe we can all chat again when book two comes out in you know, about two months. It'll be about four weeks later in, in England there. You won't get it until probably early April, but it'll be out in the U.S. in early March. You know, The City on the Edge of Forever, of course, is, is a classic, one of the great love stories ever filmed in my opinion but but one of my favorites too along with naked time is uh this side of paradise and shortly i think shortly and this side of paradise and naked time are my three favorite episodes from the first year of star trek and all three of them and the city of on the edge of forever have something in common they all really get to the core of these characters they're almost uncomfortable to watch They're very entertaining, but they're almost uncomfortable because we're seeing things that we wouldn't want to reveal about ourselves in any of these episodes. Star Trek had an embarrassment of riches. I I mean, really with most TV shows, if, if, Half of the episodes you make are halfway decent. You feel proud. Star Trek, I think I think nine out of ten are truly classics and deserve to be called classics. To try to name your favorite Star Trek episode or even your favorite episode from season one is almost impossible because there's so many great ones.
1: I, I think what's good about Star Trek is that there's an episode for how you're feeling at one particular moment in time.
0: Well, you know, I, I told John and Mary this, that when I first saw Charlie X, I was Maybe 15 or 14. And I was just starting to notice women, discover women, and and feel that sick thing in the the pit of your stomach when you're around some girl that you have a crush on, but you don't know what to do about it. And to see a character on a TV show go through that and have that father-son, man-to-boy talk that Kirk has with Charlie in that episode, I'd never seen that conversation on a TV show before. And it really spoke to me where I was at that moment in my life you know and i actually made a point of showing that episode to my son when he became a teenager because i knew he would get so much out of it and he did so yeah the 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 themes in star trek were very bold they did go boldly where no story has ever gone before and they were very bold and very positive the themes were very positive too so you you feel good about yourself and about life. I mean, God, you got Kirk there speaking on behalf of mankind, and he'll admit that we're a miserable race, but we have hope. And that's that's all we need to hear. We need to hear that we have hope.
1: Mm. Despite resistance from the network, Star Trek crossed several television frontiers, as we've mentioned, especially during a conservative time in um, network television. How were you able to achieve this, John? How, How did you work your way around the network?
2: Well, we went at them head on. When I were to deal with a network, I would say, yes, sir, no, sir. He would say, what the hell do you think you're doing? And that was the difference. Uh, And that worked somehow or another. Roddenberry's approach and my approach in dealing with a network, uh, it
0: played out perfectly. Because of that, we only have three seasons. You know, if Roddenberry had not tried to push the type of stories he was, was pushing and allowing John and the others to write the type of stories they were writing because if john had gone in and pitched the naked time to any other show if he had pitched that to Irwin allen he would, have, would not have bought it no, no no way because it was really about something and that would have scared him because that would have scared his network so gene wanted to take them on and he did it week after week with uh, provocative stories and controversial stories and that that resulted in nbc uh trying to cancel the show They tried to cancel it at the end of the first year, even though it was quite often winning its time slot. They they put the lie out there that it wasn't doing well in the ratings because they had to justify it to their board of directors and their their shareholders. But it was doing very well, but they just didn't like those kind of stories being told. It was too hot. It was a hot potato. You've also had feedback on the book from Walter Koenig, of
1: course, as we know, played Mr. Chekhov. And he's actually said that these are the voyages, TOS Season 1, is a most extraordinary, comprehensive detailed book. If you're a Star Trek fan and you want to know the minutiae, any question you have that has to deal with Star Trek is addressed with great integrity and a sense that you can believe what you're reading. Now, that's an amazing compliment. And as I say, I'm only a third way through the book and I agree completely. Have you had any further feedback from any of the other Star Trek actors out there?
0: Yeah, I have. And first of all, thank you for reading that because I hadn't heard that. So I'll have to thank Walter when I see him next time. Walter paid me a great compliment. He agreed to write the foreword to book two. And I wanted him because that's where his character is introduced in the first episode of season two. So who better to write the foreword? He read book one and he called me up and he said, I'll do it because I trust you. He said, after reading book one, I trust you. And I've never trusted a writer before who writes about other writers. So that meant a lot to me because my only agenda was to tell the truth in these books and to show people the blood, sweat and tears that went into the making of every Star Trek episode. And that means show the conflict as well. That's part of the, the blood and the sweat and the tears. But uh, that goes into any anything that is worth doing. There has to be a struggle, and there's certainly a struggle with each of those episodes. Well, Leonard Nimoy called, and I'd been trying to interview Leonard, but Leonard politely declined because he had written two books of his own, and he's given hundreds of interviews over the years. So he finally decided several years ago that he said everything he could possibly say on Star Trek, so he politely declined. Well, then I get a phone call from him, and he's reading the book, and and he hunted me down. He couldn't find my number, so he called a, a college where I teach here in LA to get the number from them. And it's somebody from the college called up and said, "Uh, Mark, somebody who says he's Leonard Nimoy is trying to get your phone number. Is it okay if we give it to him? And, And Leonard called and he said, he said, Mark, the research is astounding. I've read a lot of good, great reviews on this, and they're all well-deserved. And my, I'm, I'm telling you, cheer, chills went up my spine when I heard that. Well, first of all, to hear Mr. Spock say the research is astounding, I, I couldn't ask for a better compliment. So that, that was really good. Harlan Ellison called me up, and when you see Harlan's name on your phone, you immediately get nervous. <laughs> <laughs> John, John and Mary are laughing. You know what I mean? You know, the phone rang and I looked at it and said, Harlan Ellison calling. And and so you you pick it up with a shaky hand because I knew he had gotten the book at that point. And Harlan can be very critical. And he said to me, I'll try to remember his line because it was classic Harlan. Nobody's wittier than Harlan Ellison. And he instantly witty, constantly. My God, in just a five minute phone call, there's so many great lines that will come out of his mouth. He said something along the lines of, uh, he said, Mark, I'm not going to say that it was Awesome, because that's a word I reserve for Eleanor Roosevelt and the Grand Canyon. But it comes close. And he said, "But by the way, the name's Edith Keeler, not Edith Kessler. You misspelled it on page 486." <laughs> <laughs> that meant a lot to me because I was able to correct that uh, that misspelled word too. So I thanked him for that. And John and Mary paid me a wonderful tribute and what they said about the book. And I'll let them. Say it now, because I'll blush if I say it.
2: Well, it's the most honest book it's possible to write on the subject of the Trek. Bobby Justman could call it Star Trek and mean Drek, not Trek. And he could do anything that he chose. But the fact of the matter is that when Mark did the book, he didn't leave anything out, not the positive, not the negative. He had no bias. He had no axe to grind. He didn't like anybody better than he liked anybody else, as he wrote uh, from his writer's perspective. And we all got to hear what happened. And when we read the book, when Mary and I read the book, we realized that what he had done was he was a fly on the wall. And he carried he carried that
0: into the yeah. book. Yeah, I, I buzz a lot. I'm a good fly. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I guess, I guess the, the thing that's worn my heart the most, I mean, any of these things are good to hear, because when you work on something for six, seven years, you know, you go into a cave, and, uh, and I'm living in the 1960s for seven years, living this, writing about this, experiencing it, so I can help everybody else experience it, and you have to turn off a lot of your life, you have to miss out on a lot of things when you get this deeply involved in a project, but, you know, to hear the fans respond so well means a lot, but I've had a lot of people who were on the show call me and say, I didn't know that. Uh, They were there, but you know, they were in their office. They didn't know what was going on in the office next door all the time. So I've had a lot of people who I interviewed who were there call up and, and say they were very interested to read this because it told them what was going on in the other rooms and they believe it. It makes sense, but it was stuff they didn't always know. So that, that's always very rewarding for a writer to be able to do that too. So what surprises do you have in store for us for the season two book? There's a couple big surprises in season two. Well, for, you haven't even gotten to the big surprises in book one yet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you will. You know, here's the great thing about Star Trek, and I can't take credit for this. I'm just a reporter, but the story is great in itself. And, and the three seasons of Star Trek are like a three-act structure to a movie. And, you know, if you break a movie into three acts, which all movies are, as script writers would know that, you have Act 1, Act 2, and Act 3, and and each one has its own important uh, contribution to the story and what it has to accomplish. Star Trek has a great three-act structure, too, with each season. And it gets more dramatic, just like a movie does. It gets more desperate as it continues in its journey. More things are going against it each year. And so that's the fascinating thing. In season two, book two coming up in a a couple months, first of all, they almost lost Leonard Nimoy. Mr. Spock almost did not make it on board, the Enterprise, for the first episode of season two over a, a salary dispute. Not not created by him, but created by his agent. It was a fight between his agent and Desi Lu because he was signed on to be a supporting player. And by the end of the first season, he was getting more fan mail than the star of the show was. So his agent said, well, he needs to be paid accordingly. And Desilu said, we, we, we won't. And so they actually had hired somebody to be the new Vulcan on the Enterprise for season two. And you're going to find out who, and you're going to find out what, and you're going to read the letters that went back and forth between the two camps. And so you're going to feel that you are watching it happen right in front of you. And Lucille Ball loses her studio. She gambled her entire studio on Star Trek. And in the middle of the second season, she had to sell to Paramount. She lost her studio, and it's a heartbreaking story. She was so upset that when it was time to sign the contracts, she ran away. She jumped on a plane and flew to Miami Beach to appear on the Jackie Gleason show and wouldn't answer her phone. And the attorneys had to fly out, find her in Miami, try to get her to sign the papers because she was so emotionally distraught over losing the studio that she and her husband had built. And it's all she had left of that marriage. And she believed in Star Trek. And now she was losing everything because of it. Because it was the most expensive show on TV. Second most, I Spy, the other show I wrote about, was the most expensive. Star Trek was number two. And then the whole story about Gene Coon. Why did he leave? Nobody's ever talked about it because he wasn't around to ask. He died in 1973. But it's in the papers. It's in the memos. And you'll hear it in his own words and people who knew him. So the, those stories are going to come out. And you're going to find out a lot of very startling information about, I think, the greatest series ever made. I'm looking forward to that. Now, looking further ahead to season
1: three, which many fans don't consider to be the best of Star Trek. How will you keep see the season three book from becoming what some might consider a depressing read?
0: Well, they they feel it's not the best season because John D.F. Black wasn't there. and. <laughs> <laughs> John. John's nodding his head. Yes. <laughs> you know what? First of all, I think the third season is underrated and I'll tell you why. No, it's not as good as season one or season two, not by a, a mile. And everyone knows it. But you look at some of the episodes, you look at uh, Alana Troyus, which I think is, is very entertaining. You look at the Paradise Syndrome, you look at the Empath, which was Gene Roddenberry's favorite episode of the entire series, All Our Yesterdays. You know, there there's a couple tremendous episode. Uh, I, I love Spectre of the Gun. It's so surrealistic and so so bizarre. I love that episode. And so imaginative with the set design and everything else. Now, there's some very good episodes in the third season, but the budget had been cut so horribly. And Gene had left the show in a dispute with NBC over the bad time slot. They put it on Friday nights at 10 o'clock in the third year, determined they were going to kill the show for once and for all. So Gene walked. So it had a lot of things going against it. But if it wasn't for the third season, there wouldn't be a Star Trek today. There wouldn't have been enough episodes to get into syndication. And they really were trying and working very hard to keep getting those episodes out with the worst possible conditions that they could possibly be under to do it. And you're going to find out all about that. You're going to find out why the pacing is a little slower why certain stories were made and others weren't. And you'll you'll find out the reasons behind it all. So I think it's going to make a very interesting read for any fans of the show, even if it's not their favorite episodes.
1: Would you consider writing the same sort of format for the next generation if the opportunity ever arose?
0: Well, I'd, I'd need money first. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's a great John Lennon said that when the Beatles arrived in the U.S., there was a press conference at the airport. And a 100 reporters shouting questions at them like they had just arrived from Mars, you know, because no English band had ever been successful in the U.S. before. And they didn't look like anybody from here and sound like anybody from here. And somebody said, you know, we hear you can't even sing. Can you sing something for us? And John Lennon said, we need money first. And America fell in love with them right at that moment because they found out they had a wit and they were funny, too. But, no, I, I, you know, I got to, first of all, sell enough of these books to pay off my debts from the last few years.
1: Star Trek's been rebooted, as we know. There's two films out now, Star Trek and Star Trek Into Darkness. I was just wondering, have the three of you seen the new films, and what's your opinion, and is it Star Trek?
3: I don't think we really believed it was Star Trek. The alteration of the characters, the romance between Spock and Uhuru, There was never any sense of any romantic relationship between those two characters in the original series, and it felt pasted on for the movie. And John and I kept nudging each other and murmuring things during the movie of this doesn't really sync up. I can't
2: argue that at all. When we we saw the film, we were really stunned at the differences between the characters, between the ones that we knew so well from the series originally and what they put into that picture even though the kid who played who was he who played
3: you're talking about spock or the
2: kid who played the the character who uh kurt chris pine no the other one uh zachary, zachary quinto. quinto yeah zachary quinto it turned out that at different times we went to the same high school and graduated there from. and that was a that was one of the better things that came out of that, <laughs> that experience but i really didn't like it uh it didn't feel like Star Trek.
0: I enjoyed it, but I hear everything John and Mary are saying and agree with them. I, I saw it with my son, and he... Uh, or maybe we saw it separately and just discussed it. It's, I'm trying to remember, but uh, he started watching the first Star Trek because he saw that first movie. And he came into my office one day. I have an office here in the house. And he came and he said, I've been watching the original show you're writing about. He says, it's not bad. I like it. And and he said, in fact, after I watch each episode, I find myself sitting and thinking about it for about 10 or 15 minutes. I said, do you do that with any other show you see on TV? And he said, no. And so by using those characters for the new movie series. I think Paramount did a very smart thing and I think they have gotten a lot of people, a lot of young people interested in the true origins and those and how those characters were handled on TV back in the beginning. So I'm happy to see that. I was entertained by the movies. They're very entertaining. But I agree with John and Mary that the characters have been altered there, there, there's little things that are alike. Okay, Kirk is ambitious and he likes to cheat and he's a, a risk taker and, and so forth. And they're very different beyond that. And the main problem I have with it is what I have with a lot of action movies these days is it gets too cartoonish. Uh, you have a fight scene and you throw somebody 100 yards against a steel wall and they get up and they come right back into the fight when really every bone in their body would be broken even if they were evoking, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. so... I see things like that, and it's it suspends the belief for me. Where in the real show, they they were real characters in my mind. I think the worst thing that can happen to a movie is having too much money. The bigger the budget gets, usually the dumber the script gets, mm. unless genre, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> <And, laughs> oh no, no, no. But having said that, it was very entertaining, and surprisingly, on the second movie, I got a little, little teary eyed during that scene where either Kirk or Spock is been exposed to radiation, depending on whether you watch Rathacon or you watch this uh, latest movie. They kind of switched around. I thought that was interesting they did that. And I was a little choked up. So apparently, even with all the non-stop action and the suspension of belief, I was liking the characters enough to get a little choked up when it was looking like one of them was going to die. And I don't know if that's because I fell in love with the characters 40 years ago or if, or if it's because they're doing something right. But I give it mixed reviews. I like part of it and part of it I don't.
3: We did love your nation's contribution in ah. the person of Benedict Cumberbatch. <laughs> that good.
1: <laughs> no, ben- Benedict's one; he's a brilliant actor, brilliant oh, actor.
0: Yeah, that's the first thing John and Mary said to me. They saw it before I did because I was busy. And they went to the director's guild and saw a screening. And, and I said, what did you think of the movie? And they said, the villain is great. And they they, they loved his character and they loved the actor. Uh, so that that much you enjoyed. Yes, we did.
1: So, Mark and John and Mary, first of all, thank you so much for coming on this evening. I really appreciate all your time.
3: We're happy to do
1: it. It, it's it was a thrill. Thank, thank you. It, it's been amazing. And of course, Mark, I, I'd love you to come back and all of you to come back on to discuss book two and then hopefully later book three if, if you allow me to come back and talk some more with you about it.
0: You know, I hate talking about Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> No, this was a pleasure and I'll be happy to talk when book two comes out and book three comes out and I'm going to make you a bet for a dollar or a pound. You're going to like book three a lot and I think everybody else will too. I like book two better than book one and I think book three is my favorite because the story just gets so dramatic and so interesting okay. and and it's still Star Trek. You know, Bob Justman had a great line. He said, I love them all, even the much maligned Spock's brain. And you know what? If you truly love Star Trek TOS, you love them all. Yeah, exactly.
1: Exactly. No, I'm looking forward to book two and definitely book three. And I would love you to come back on at some point, Mark, and, and if you wouldn't mind discussing Sarek with me as well, what it was like to write happy, a TV episode.
0: Be happy to anytime.
1: For our listeners, how can they find out more about you? Where would they go?
0: Well, you know, you can just look up com on the internet. I have my own website, as, as most of us do these days, and you can find out things there. But the, the publisher... Uh, Jacobs Brown Media Group, uh, they got a website too, but uh, they just built a special website just for this book series, and it's a real easy one to remember. These are the com. And if you go there, you'll see all a slideshow of all kinds of rare pictures. You'll see trivia every day, new stuff is posted. You'll see um, release dates for the books coming up, and you'll get to see the covers, and you can even pre order. Book two starting in a couple of weeks, and those will be sent out for it's even available on Amazon. Thank you very much,
1: everyone. Thank you for your time. I've really enjoyed this evening. As
0: yes, we did. Thank you, Michael. You Thank have a you. great
1: night. Now, I really hope you enjoyed the interview. You can find out more about the book on visionarytrack.com or you can go to jakersbrownmediagroup.com for more information. So that's it for this show, and as always, don't forget to turn the page for our next adventure.
0: You've been listening to The Captain's Table.